Hello, welcome to episode 26 of Sailing Uncovered. I'm Alec Wilkinson with a special edition of the show dedicated to rescuing our oceans. It's brought to you by 11th Hour Racing, which harness the power of sports to restore ocean health by working with a broad range of sponsorships, grantees and ambassadors. 11th Hour Racing is moving the needle forward on ocean health one degree at a time. And they've helped us line up four fantastic guests to speak to, all of them with a different perspective on the subject. So, coming up, one of the biggest names in modern yachting, Ellen MacArthur. And you know how passionately she can speak on things she cares about, as she cares very deeply about the oceans. That'll be a fascinating interview. We'll also hear how lessons learned by the Round the World Ocean Race can help us all become better caretakers of the ocean. And what about politicians and governments, hey? Well, how are they supporting this movement? We'll ask that to the UN specialist on ocean health. But we start with our first guest, skipper, ocean advocate, ambassador for Sky Ocean Rescue, Emily Penn, who I caught up with at one of her presentations in Germany, where she was talking about an amazing research voyage around the world called Expedition, a grantee of 11th Hour Racing. My first question, though, was what triggered this passion for saving our seas? It was over 10 years ago I had a chance to take a boat from England to Australia. I was actually hitchhiking to a new job. But along the way, I jumped in the ocean a thousand miles from land and saw these fragments of plastic floating. And it, it didn't make any sense to me at the time. And so I, from there, started learning more about the issue, stopping at these islands, organizing big cleanup projects and looking at education and policy change. And it just spiraled from there, this desire to do something for this problem that was so visible everywhere I was sailing. And, and what was the first step? You went off on a cruise and, and studied the rubbish that is in the oceans. Yeah, I mean, actually, once I uh, had got round to Australia, the first thing I went to do was live on a little island, Tonga, in the heart of the South Pacific, which has a huge waste management problem. There's no infrastructure at all. All the domestic waste, which is really driven by limited resource because their fisheries have collapsed and they can't grow food, all that waste had nowhere to go. And at the same time, they also had this waste washing in from other countries thousands of miles away. So the first step was to try and clean it up. But since then, it's moved to research, to understanding the gyres, and now source-based solutions to stop the plastic getting in in the first place. Now, as part of your presentation, you show some pretty horrific videos of the effects of plastic in the ocean, uh, which, um, if you're listening to this, you can go to our Facebook page um, and, and have a look at some of those videos. We'll share those with our, with our listeners. Um, but in words, just describe how huge this problem is. Yeah, I think, so one of the things that always surprises people when we actually get out there is that this concept of an island of plastic doesn't actually exist. But the truth's kind of even more terrifying. So when we put a fine mesh net through the water and pull it up on board, we suddenly realise that there are hundreds of tiny fragments of plastic, what we call microplastics. And you then suddenly look out and think, it looks blue and beautiful, but every inch of that ocean has a little piece of microplastic in it. And so 
that's I think the most terrifying thing but you also do see when you look over the side of the boat a piece every 10 seconds coming past and often something you recognize a toothbrush or a cigarette lighter a bottle top and it makes you wonder that toothbrush brushed somebody's teeth at some point who did it belong to and how has it got so far out into an uninhabited part of our planet and it's already entered the food chain not just within fish but it's it's entered us as well there's all sorts of studies that have come out recently looking at things like table salt and even the air that we're breathing in the water that we're drinking and really understanding now that bits of plastic are getting into us and um, probably by more direct sources than actually from the fish and um, but one of the things that we have been looking at with the fish is is whether the toxics chemicals so not the actual plastic but the chemicals that adhere to it or are used in its production could be going up the food chain because we know we we've got those chemicals in us as well, um, maybe from direct sources, maybe coming from the pollution. Uh, there's still lots of unanswered questions, but what we do know is that it is impacting health um, and we need to do something about it. And you know for sure, because you've been your own guinea pig. I tested for the toxics, uh, not yet the plastics, that's quite hard, but these chemicals that are used in the production of plastic and that also adhere to the surface. and. I tested for 35 of these chemicals that are banned because they're toxic to humans. Banned by the United Nations? By the United Nations, exactly. And we found 29 of those 35 wow. in me. Um, it was a pretty big day. Uh, I wasn't expecting to find anything and I couldn't believe it. And you put together an expedition which continues some years later. It has. So we put together this voyage called X Expedition, all women, particularly because a lot of those chemicals I found I had inside me can act as hormone disruptors. So during pregnancy, bad news, and we can also pass them on to our children when we give birth. So I wanted to tackle this women-centered issue with an amazing team of women. Um, but as you say, you know, it started as one. We've now done 11 of these voyages and it's just been the most amazing journey and surprised me in so many ways, particularly the aspect of going sailing with an all-women team. So, uh, about the all-women team, I mean, yes, Obviously, the chemicals affect um, women and hormones and, and pregnancy and so on, but it affects dads as well. It, you're bringing people together to fight it. it. I just wonder whether separating the sexes is actually divisive. Yeah, completely agree. We all need to be working on this problem together. I think particularly for me, I felt the women health angle was strong because of the scary fact that we can pass them on to our children, which obviously men don't have the opportunity to do. But the thing that really surprised me about having an all-women crew together was the amazing bonding that happened on board that boat. And I had sailed with many mixed teams previously and never felt the dynamic feel so incredible. The sort of broken down at the beginning with the seasickness and then the gradual build up throughout that trip of confidence more than anything and forming these kind of alliances. And, you know, when you put someone behind the helm who's never helmed a 72-foot yacht before, they're terrified on day one, but day five, they're kind of just cruising along, hanging out, while this boat's surging through the water. 
And there's something that happens with all girls that gives um, such a confidence boost. There's no kind of macho feeling around. Um, and the support network that develops during that month at sea is something that then goes on to last a lifetime. Um, and it's that powerful nature of an all-women team, which is why I've decided to carry on. So what's the solution? So the solution's at the source, really. Um, so it's looking, I mean, for me, it's um, really about going beyond that first initial way, which is just stop using single-use plastic, because we can all do that. We hear it everywhere we look at the moment. Avoid single-use, um, and you can be a part of the solution yourself. But the next two steps... But, sorry, just on that, on that point, I mean, the fact is, we've got so much plastic around and not just floating in the ocean but everywhere that you've got to ask why are we still making plastic i think we're still making it because it's cheap and convenient and there's so many ways that we still use it so there's lots of things we can avoid like bags and bottles and straws but the hardest thing right now i find is food packaging you know i can't cook dinner without having single-use plastic and so this is why we're you know we're so easy because we haven't actually worked out yet how to overcome a lot of our packaging problems and um, which is why I'm sort of excited about the next two steps uh, one which is how do we use all this waste material that's currently as you say you know in our oceans on our beaches in our landfills first step is to be using that instead of new plastic but really where we're heading is to figure out how we can actually live in circles how can we design new materials that are truly biodegradable and how can we develop systems that are closed loop and leave no waste are you optimistic for our future as human beings I'm very optimistic. I think partly because I've dedicated a decade of my life now to this and I wake up every day working out how can I best tackle the problem and I can't imagine a day when I won't be doing that. I mean, hopefully we'll make progress with plastic and I can move on to something else, but you know, it is what I live and breathe. So I couldn't imagine feeling like we're not going to achieve those goals. But I think probably the thing that makes me so optimistic is feeling this amazing energy right now from people around the world who are all stepping up and saying hey I want to do something and I feel at the moment like I'm the lucky person in the middle that gets to feel that energy you know we've just launched this uh, all women's round the world voyage for next year and we've already had 3,000 applicants for 300 places there is this upwelling of interest on the issue um, and we do need an army. <laughs> we need an army of leaders on this issue so that we can carry this influence around the world. So that's what we need to grow. I think that's the first step. And then all of these solutions, um, as we start to work on this in a multidisciplinary way, will happen. The earlier expeditions seem to be made up of young women and it is young people who are going to have to sort this out. It's it's their planet and it's it's their future. But there's stuff that we can all do, and you've got a, a, a website that can help people who are listening, who are pulling their hair out, saying, yeah, that's all very well, but what can we do at home? Oceanchangemakers.com is the website, and it's broken down into a whole load of simple how-to guides with some great ideas on getting started of how to eliminate plastic in your household, your workplace, your school, and really start on this journey.
Well, the very best of luck. And when does the expedition go? October 2019, gearing up for it. <laughs> well, I know you're not doing it all, but enjoy the legs that you are doing and the very best of luck. Thanks very much. Thanks, Emily. Well, this podcast is brought to you by 11th Hour Racing, which harness the power of sport to restore ocean health by working with a broad range of sponsorships, grantees and ambassadors. They're moving the needle forward on ocean health one degree at a time. And I'm interested on this point about harnessing the power of sport to restore ocean health, uh, because uh, with Emily, we, we've painted a, a pretty bleak picture, really, uh, about sailors and adventurers reporting plastic in the furthest corners of, of the oceans. But I remember skippers two editions ago of the Volvo Ocean Race making a really hard hitting video that's still online out there somewhere um, about ocean plastic. Um, and since then, the race has worked to try and highlight the problems of plastic in the ocean. Well, Anne Cecile Turner is working on the new edition that uh, will be coming soon. Anne Cecile, first of all, thanks for joining us. Uh, just tell us a little bit about the work that the Volvo Ocean Race has done, as it was, as it was known back then, uh, has done to raise awareness. Yes, the idea was to really use the um, global sport event uh, crossing the globe over a period of nine months to highlight, uh, you know, the issue of our threatened playground and uh, to make sure that uh, we are going to beyond performance. So, of course, performance is key. But um, how about using the power and the voice that the ocean race has to um, create awareness about the very important issue? Uh, on ocean plastic pollution. So it's visible, the, the sailors are seeing seeing it, uh, the public is seeing it now, but uh, we've created an awareness campaign in partnership with the UN Environment, uh, last edition of the race, uh, with their Clean Seas campaign. Uh, so all the boats had on their booms the call to action that was clear and visible, turn the tide on plastic. We also had one boat on the race called Turn the Tide on Plastic with a female skipper and um, a mixed crew of uh, male and female uh, under 30. So all these values of uh, you know gender diversity and also inclusion were, were carried by that, by that team. But we also had a huge program across the, the race for fan engagement, ocean summits, uh, science program to uh, you know highlight the issue of ocean plastic pollution. Do you think that that message went beyond sailing, though? Uh, sailing as a sport has done a terrific job so far of, of raising awareness amongst the boating community. Do you, think, do you think you've managed to take that mainstream now? Well, in the last two years, uh, I think more than 130 countries have adopted plastic bans. Uh, so, of course, we are dropping the ocean uh, of that movement, but I really do believe that uh, the, the global awareness is, is rising and uh, we have done our contribution. We have managed to have three countries signing the Clean Seas Pledge and it's definitely uh, you know, expanding the scope of our own core sports boundaries, really. T tell us about that pledge. So, it's a pledge that we're encouraging institutions, private sector, governments, to take action uh, against plastic pollution. And for example, we had, uh, and it's, uh, it's been uh, in partnership, as I said, with the UN environment, it's called Clean Seas. And they launched it last time to engage, you know, all the key stakeholders and the influencers uh, into the movement of accelerating the pace of action. 
And for example, when we arrived in Spain, uh, the uh, the Spanish government take, took the, the pledge, uh, the city of Alicante took the pledge, and we ended up having 20,000 people signing the pledge. And it was 20% at the time of the total number of pledges. So it's quite a significant uh, contribution. Where are you hoping to take the work that you're doing with the Ocean Race uh, for the next edition? How, how are things going to be ramped up? So uh, we have been so pleased you know for from the last edition to have created a movement to have engaged so many stakeholders along the way uh, pleased also to have been recognized by industry i think uh, next week we're going to receive our fifth award for the campaign so um yes, I know. it's difficult uh, it's difficult to track you down because you're always at an award ceremony <laughs> <laughs> And it's like in the US and in Europe. And yes, it's been, I mean, it's an amazing, um, you know, reward for us to see uh, so much recognition from the industry and uh, and beyond. So um, it has been creating such a momentum that uh, all the partners wanted to, to stay on board. And uh, even before the next race is happening in 2021, we have um, announced a partnership with the 11th Hour Racing, who is our was our you know founding partner for the sustainability program and, and is again now our premier founding partner for the next edition of the race uh, who is doing a tremendous job in also encouraging us to create that platform for action uh, we're launching a series of 11 ocean summits before until the end of the the next edition of the race as a platform for engagement and action to design uh, roadmaps uh, so it's not uh, again another event on the ocean it's an, a series of events that will highlight the issue, showcase innovation and best practice, and engage industries in action. Uh, on top of that, an innovation is that um, we're going to launch a series of innovation workshops, industry-led innovation workshops, around themes like sustainable fashion, uh, because of the, the issue of microfiber, around the themes of sustainable boat building, to also be a catalyst for accelerating change to restore ocean health, and that's our vision. So lots uh, going on. On our education program, we're also launching a sailing and science topic. We're opening the education program to secondary schools and we're launching a professional development uh, platform. So of course we need to act ourselves, but our kids and the kids of our kids and the future generation are the ones who will be really um, tackling the issue. So we're creating a whole uh, interactive platform for them. And uh, fan engagement is also a key issue for us. I work across a lot of sports and sailing does a, a very good job of trying to be more and more uh, sustainable. But there are issues there, aren't there? Because uh, especially with round the world races, especially with Olympic circuits, there's a lot of traveling involved. There's a lot of flying involved. There are helicopters involved and the dreaded coaching ribs. So there's still a lot of road to, to travel yet, isn't there? Absolutely. And you're touching the elephant in the room for our industry, <laughs> whether it's sailing or, or other sports. And of course, that's a core issue for us as well. So what the approach we've taken, and um, I think we really need, we've acknowledged that. So we have started to measure our impact and our carbon impact. And we are reaching the phase where we have like real numbers from us and our stakeholders. We've uh, enlarged the scope, of course, to our um, guests and uh, all the, the stakeholders. 
Um, and we have already implemented a reduction of uh, travel uh, as much as we can. We encourage, uh, you know, train, bike, um, and I, th I think we, we, the policy, travel policy within the race is um, is, uh, is is very good and needs to be implemented as much as we can. So we're really traveling less, uh, you know, in terms of organization, in terms of events. Um, for what we can't reduce, uh, we are working on, on the idea of positive participation. So to engage our stakeholders in that um, carbon emission, first to make them aware about their, their own footprint, but also encourage them to reduce it. And uh, it's not completely ready yet. Maybe it will be the occasion of a second uh, interview. But uh, when we are coming up with a new program, I think it's going to be very interesting and, uh, and uh, efficient to create a net positive impact. Um, right. So what, what are three things we as weekend sailors, we go out, we have fun, maybe we're part of a sailing club. What can we do to improve the situation? Well, there, there are very, uh, you know, basic principles that we tend to follow, uh, which we call the three R's, uh, refuse, reduce, recycle. Um, if we talk about and uh, think about single-use plastic, obviously, but then we could also include um, travel and transportation in that. And that's um, been, uh, if you want to go further uh, than these three hours, we also have a complete guide on how to organize a sporting event. It will be online uh, soon. Because we're going to launch a citizen science program for the next uh, Ocean Race when we're going to ask everybody to contribute in a data collection. Not necessarily, you know, what we, that, that is traditionally called beach cleanings, which we don't really believe is a, the solution. It, of, of course, contributes, but it's more data gathering, helping us to understand the pollution. That's really interesting because um, you see more and more of these um, sort of beach clear-up days, um, and, and they are just that. But you're saying you can take it a step further by not just clearing the rubbish, the litter on, on beaches, but analysing it as well. Absolutely. How does it help? And, and it helps because it's going to feed into a global database of information and that uh, we're working on a program to make sure that that data has a useful destination for influencers, policymakers, uh, private sector and media. Okay, and Cecile, thanks very much. Fascinating stuff. You've got a lot of work to do, but you've done a lot of amazing work already. So uh, well done for that. Good luck for the next race. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Lots more to discuss. So from Anne-Cecile in Switzerland, let's now cross to Sweden and we can uh, explore the problems of ocean plastic and say, sustainability a little bit more on this special edition of Sailing Uncovered, brought to you by 11th Hour Racing, who harness the power of sport to restore ocean health. So let's go to Dr. Lisa Amelius Venson, who uh, led the work on oceans at the UN Environment Programme. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Uh, where does the UN actually fit into this discussion? Well, the role of UN is to be the global advocate, the voice for environmental issues and particularly ocean, since ocean is 70% of the earth and a key emerging issue, also on the political level, but also, of course, for the public awareness and, and um, in general, in terms of how we see the plastic as one of the major problems being and getting a lot of attention during the last couple of years. So the role of the UN and the role of the UN environment is really to focus on those challenges and, and really push the boundaries on what we can do and, and create an awareness and partnership with key actors and stakeholders to really drive actions forward. 
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned politics. The minute you mentioned politics, <laughs> everyone listening kind of goes, oh. But <laughs> it's it, it's a serious point that um, we can do whatever we want. We can work as hard as we want as individuals, um, you know, to, to clean up beaches, to stop uh, using uh, single-use plastics, to recycle, blah, blah, blah. But if the top organization in the world and uh, governments are not behind that movement, then it's not really going to have a massive effect. No, that's true. At the same time, neither could UN as an organization or an institution solve the problem. And neither could any government, like one government. It, this is really a challenge that is global, truly global, and you need to solve the problem in cooperation and in partnership. So neither could a company do it neither could one individual or a group everyone can do something but together we get so much stronger and we could complement each other so the role of the un is to facilitate and support both governance but also create a momentum for awareness with the civil society and of course enabling the private sector to address those issues and i and obviously the private sector and the activists is a really crucial element to combat really the plastic solutions or the plastic problems, because that's where we find the concrete solutions, that's where we find the ideas, the innovations, but those needs to be facilitated and scaled up on a broader global level. And on, on, on a practical level as well, you know, you're actually supporting, the UN is actually supporting projects around the world, you know, right down at grassroots level, training, you know, marine protected area staff in the Indian Ocean, for example. Yeah. Yes, we do. We have a lot of, of course, specific projects in various parts of the world. But we also have it to remind ourselves that UN is not stronger than member states. And member states, the governors and nations themselves, have to take their own responsibility to really implement the needed action on, on the ground, in their area, in the local and the regional uh, areas, of course, in the governance. Let's just touch on um, what in the industry is called SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, because there were 17 of them set by the UN. Um, and one of them was specifically about oceans. And it was pretty much setting up a mandate, wasn't it, for the world, really, on, on how we were going to improve things. Yes, it's 17 goals um, that really set the target to 2030. And one of them is focusing on ocean in particular. And one of the targets and indicators, as we call it, in that specific goal is also looking at the marine um, pollution. So the land-based pollution, as we know, pollution comes from land and runs into the ocean. Um, on a personal level, um, what can we as listeners do? I mean, I think the strongest action is, of course, to pose questions uh, as a con uh, consumer when you buy products asking for different uh, alternatives and also refuse refuse to plastic that is not necessary and um, that would also create a demand that could also change market and once the market change we can see more drastically change you can also reach out to your politicians and, and make sure that your voice is also heard for those crucial issues in terms of environmental uh, challenges um it's interesting isn't it because at the moment sort of making the news on a regular basis uh, are countries that are turning away um, the developed world's recycling. Um, so quite often we're quite happy to use single-use plastic because we put it in the recycling bin and we think that's 
the end of it and it'll be recycled but actually it's being packed into uh, containers and being sent abroad and now countries like China and Malaysia are saying enough is enough and they're sending it back yeah that'll raise awareness if ever it will but it's also stopping that we have to take care of our own waste right at its source and not just chip it and move the problem to somewhere else and I think that would change the market once again to starting to think about how do we recycle, what kind of standards, what kind of materials and products design can we use and facilitate and enhance in the future to be able to recycle in a much more cost-effective way. And I think another challenge is, of course, where the plastic is, the chemicals in the plastic, and how will we be able to sort the plastic, the different kind of plastics, to be able to reuse it. Uh, we're going to speak to Ella MacArthur shortly about the circular economy. What do you make of that? Well, I think that's that's what we wanted to reach in that sense, and not only with plastic, but also in our sort of resource economy. So looking into all our resources and, and see how could we actually reuse them and put a value in the um, in the end of the consumption to be able to to recycle them. World Ocean Day is the 8th of June. Um, this podcast is coming out just before it, but many will listen to it just after it. So what what are the hopes, what are the goals that the UN sort of have in setting up a day like this? It's sort of driving the, um, or focusing the attention to one issue. Um, and the 8th of June is a World Ocean Day, as you correctly pointed out. And it's really to put the attention, examples on why we need to protect the ocean, why do we value it, how is our lives dependent on ocean. And this year, 2019, is the theme of ocean is gender issue. So looking into, you know, in terms from a gender perspective, example of small-scale fisheries, that women many times are depending on, on that sector and how they are uh, also very vulnerable when, uh, fish, when fish are gone and we're fishing out our waters. So it's putting a gender perspective to the ocean. This, that's the theme this year. Isn't that a bit of a distraction, though, bringing in human issues like gender to uh, subjects as massive and uh, vital for, for, well, the environment? The problem with the ocean is, of course, due to humans, and we are a part of the equ equation of how to solve it. And... I think by adding sort of another angle every year to the theme of ocean is also drawing, you know, specific attention to, so how not only will we be able to solve the problem, but also how does actually ocean in so many different parts of life and so many different parts of the world affect different groups. And it is a major group. And it's also, you know, it's all those nexus effects that we call it. It affects women and it affects the local, you know, the local area, the regional economy and migration. It, it has, a, you know, many different um, aspects on, on an issue such as, such as gender. Well, this podcast has had four fascinating guests, um, all of them female. Uh, Lisa, do you think that women have a better handle on, on the issues of the environment and, and saving the oceans? I think when we're looking for innovation, the best and the brightest, when we're looking for, you know, finding solutions, we need to be able to use everyone in terms of all resources, all hands on deck, you know, no matter if it is men or women or whatever color it is. And by just sort of limited one group, we are losing the opportunities and the brains and the power in that group. 
Well, Lisa, you've been steeped in, in, in this subject for, what, 20 years you've been working at the highest level. Um, do you feel now that we as human beings, as a human race, are making progress on saving our oceans? We're making a lot of progress. In terms of saving the ocean, we still have more problems and um, solutions to tackle. But we also have, we know what to do. It's more about how do we actually form partnerships? How do we be innovative? How do we find new ways to tackle old problems? And that's why we can't be stuck in the old way of viewing those issues. And we need to find, you know, working cross institutions, cross sectors, and breaking new ground. And I'm absolutely positive that we are on a very good path ahead. Lisa Svensson, thanks very much for joining us. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for for, um, joining the conversation. Well, we've so far listened to three totally dedicated people and our final guest gave up an amazing stellar sailing career to dedicate herself to something called the circular economy. It's a way of living she believes is the answer to our environmental problems. Dame Ellen MacArthur, welcome to the podcast. With you and what we're going to discuss, it's really all about the bigger picture. First things first, though, give us an idiot's guide to the circular economy. I guess the best way to describe a circular economy is to look at the economy we have today. And you could say that today's economy is predominantly linear in that we take a material out of the ground, we make something out of it, and ultimately it gets thrown away. And we do recycle bits of it, but not by intention. We try and get what we can out at the end. And in a world with finite resources, when we know they're not going to last forever, when we have a growing world population, that cannot run in the long term because you're using stuff up. In a circular economy, you redesign the whole way resources are used in the economy. So you don't use them up, you use them. You make sure that whatever you design, you can recover the materials afterwards. You make sure you can remanufacture products and you make sure that you can keep products in use for as long as possible. And and ultimately, the three elements of a circular economy are design out waste and pollution, so make everything work don't create waste you keep products and materials in use for as long as possible so that's not just the product in use and the ability to remanufacture it but it's also the fact that you can recover the components and the materials from that product and keep them in use for as long as possible so you know product turns into something else because the materials are recovered and then the third element is one of regenerating natural systems when you look at materials within our economy we have technical materials like plastics and metals that you can recycle and feed back into an economy but then you also have biological materials which you can turn into many different products but ultimately they biodegrade and they become biomass and that's the ability to take human waste farm waste agricultural waste food waste food production waste a cotton timber anything that biodegrades and feed it back to the farms to regenerate farmland which we see so little of sadly today now plastic in the ocean is is a huge topic at the moment it seems to me that the circular economy which you've been talking about for over eight years nine years almost takes everything one step further i mean we wouldn't even be having uh, this discussion about plastics in the ocean if we'd been following a circular economy is that right i do think that's right you know when you look at the linear economy and that kind of take make dispose uh, mentality the way our economy runs predominantly Plastics is a great example. Now, you make a phenomenal material. It's a film that keeps your chicken fresh for, I don't know, a week probably, max. Uh, That film has probably seven layers. It's incredibly intelligent. It's been designed specifically to do that job. But once that job's finished, it has no use whatsoever. That film is not designed to fit within a system. It's designed to become waste. 
because it was never designed to be anything else. It was never the design brief. And what we see as a result of that is plastic films in the ocean. We see small format packaging like sachets, you know, things in the emerging markets in the developing world you get shampoos in or soaps in or uh, coffee in. It's a very cheap way of distributing material, whatever that may be. And they are also not designed at all to be recyclable and they blow away and they end up leaking into the environment. And you know, 32% of 78 million tonnes of plastic packaging we produce every year leaks into the environment. A significant amount of that is from the emerging markets, from developing countries, uh, because it's not designed to have any value and it's not designed to be recovered and fed into a system. So what's holding us back? Because your argument is so logical, so straightforward. It's... uh seems a really easy solution is it just uh, a mental block that we as the human race have or is there are there financial reasons is it just too expensive to create this circular economy today the economy is predominantly linear and that tends to be people's mindset you know the shift from linear to circular is not necessarily easy but what's interesting particularly when you look at plastic packaging is you know even some of the biggest brands in the world you know coke and pepsi we work with they can't do it on their own because you need to change the whole system of plastic packaging. You need to decide what are we going to achieve, how are we going to reprocess the plastic, what's the plastic going to look like. What we've seen in the past is you know, people trying to solve the problem, these huge organisations producing you know, hundreds of millions of tonnes of packaging, trying to solve the problem with their own innovations. What we need to do, because it's a high volume, low value, very fragmented system, you know, plastic is made everywhere, it goes everywhere. People don't know what to do with it and a lot of it's not recyclable. We need to decide what that will look like if it's successful. And that's what we've been doing with the foundation through the new plastics economy, working with some of the biggest organisations in the world. We now have 20% of the global market working with us on not only the direction of what plastic packaging can look like, but also signing up to binding commitments as to what they're going to achieve by 2025. And that's a world where all plastic is designed so it has value, so it's recyclable, which is way from where we are today. The plastic that we don't need is eliminated effectively. So a lot of single use could be another material, could be a different distribution model. There are different ways for people to have access to those products. And also looking at the materials themselves cycling. So innovating for the plastics that we do need, eliminating the plastics that we don't. And then once we've created those recyclable plastics, making sure we circulate them. So the plastics made with recycled material. So 20% of the global plastic packaging market is working with you on this. Uh, Why have we not seen any change yet? Well, the global commitment we put together, which involved the signatures of, well, now 350 organisations, we put that together last year. That was in the summer of 2018. We, in eight weeks, got 250 signatures. We now have 20% of the global market. This has been a five-year process for us. It's not only understanding the numbers, which is where we started, realising that only 2% of plastic packaging globally gets recycled into the same quality material. But it's actually looking at how you shift the system and the realisation that you know these big companies can't do it on their own. You need to get everyone to agree on a direction, which is exactly the path that we took. We've got everyone in a room, the plastics manufacturers, the brands themselves, the chemical companies, the waste reprocessors, the municipalities who have to collect this stuff you know, all over the world, or not in many cases. Um, to get everyone in the room to say what does success look like for a plastic packaging system that works and then to decide on the fact that 50% 
should in theory be designable to be recyclable. 30% need to be redesigned because it's you know it's a very small format, you know, single use, a very, very low value, not designed to be recycled, and then 20% should be reusable. And then to get everyone to sign up to binding targets to achieve that by 2025. And that's the path that we've taken. Once you have some of the biggest players in the market saying this is what we're going to do, these are the targets, this is where we'll be by this point, then it's a lot easier for the legislators to change the whole economy by legislating for it. You seem quite positive that we might actually, as a human race, be able to make that change. I think there's a massive opportunity to build an economy that works in the long term. When you think about young people growing up today, it's not very exciting to buy yourself a bit more time, you know, to slow down your use of a certain product. Actually, what you want to do is build something that really works. And what we see with the circular economy goes way, way beyond plastic. It's the entire economy. It's how materials flow through the economy. It's how energy is needed to run that economy. It's looking at remanufacturing. It's looking at material science. It's looking at different distribution models, different business models, how we have access to products. It's looking at how do you how you design and build a system that really can run in the long term. And we work with cities, regions, municipalities, uh, government institutions looking at how to make this happen. And you know, without question, there is an energy in the room because we can do things in a better way. It's not necessarily easy to put in place, but that line to a circle is something which is clear and understandable. And if it's regenerative and restorative, we don't only have the ability to, to shift a system to one that works, but make it better, you know, to restore natural capital, to improve the quality of farmland. Natural capital? We have, you know, for billions of years, all biological material has gone back to the earth. I mean, to create more fertilizer, to help to grow forests, to grow grassland, whatever it may be, we've broken that cycle. You know, by 2050, 80% of all food will be consumed in cities. And where is that food waste, that human waste, that biological material, where is that going back to farms? It's not. We're putting on farms chemical fertilizer, which is finite, which is becoming more and more volatile, more and more expensive, and ultimately it's degrading the land because the soil is washing away, there's no biomass in there, and there's no water retention. It can't actually hold water itself. So when you start to shift the system to regenerative farming, you take that biomass from cities, you get it back to farms, you restore natural capital in the form of the soil, which means that the soil is more productive, it doesn't lose water, it doesn't need the same elements of chemical fertilizer, and you start to build a system which is cyclical rather than linear. What inspired you to get into this circular economy idea? And, and why do you think we haven't heard more about it? Is it because it is quite a complicated uh well, it's not a complicated process, really. Um, the way you describe it, it's quite, it seems quite a, a straightforward, cyclical process. But why, why isn't everyone talking about it? Why are we uh, talking about you know, plastics in the ocean and single-use plastics and we're trying to cut down on all that and trying to recycle? But circular economy doesn't seem to be uh, in the mainstream media. I was gaining a significant amount of momentum. I mean, 10 years ago, it didn't exist. If you look at the Google alerts, if you look at the Google searches around circular economy, the increase is exponential. You know, it's all over the world. It's in all different territories. It's from businesses, government institutions, educators. It really is something which is taking hold. Putting it in place is something which is complex. You know, shifting a system from linear to circular is hard. Shifting a business from linear to circular, there's a massive economic opportunity. We've proved that through many, many economic reports authored by some of the brightest minds in the in the world. But it's a case of how do you actually make that shift and how do you make that transition? That's the complex part. So is it happening fast enough? It never will be. It would be great if the world was circular tomorrow. But it's inspiring and it's about innovation and creativity and rethinking a system. And I think for the next generation, it's, it's something to really aim for.
inspirational stuff. And if you want to know more, we'll share a whole bunch of really great things from today's guests on our Sailing Uncovered Facebook page and Twitter account. So whether you want to know how to, I don't know, make your sailing event more sustainable or help collect data from a beach clean or even canvas your local government, we'll share their advice on how to do just that. Got to say a huge thank you to the show sponsors, 11th Hour Racing. They do great work harnessing the power of sport to restore ocean health. They work with a broad range of sponsorships, grantees and ambassadors to move the needle forward on ocean health one degree at a time. And we hope this special episode has inspired you to make a difference to the waters you sail on. Remember, no matter how small a change you make, if we all make those little changes, it will make a difference. That's it. Thanks for listening. Remember to share the podcast and spread the word. But for now, from me, Alec Wilkinson, it's goodbye. Goodbye.